I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Becoming a parent forces you to think about stuff. I remember looking at the little guy on our first day back at home after the hospital and thinking, man, this kid is so small. He's too small. He's got to double in size at least once or twice before anyone takes him seriously. You just can't be weighing seven pounds. That is not enough pounds. And then I slept for a bit for the first time in a week. And when I woke up, I looked at my kid and thought some other far more coherent thoughts. Interestingly, and possibly selfishly, most of those thoughts were about myself. Kids, even week old babies, make for great mirrors. I realize my kid will, hopefully, graduate high school in 2039. He'll be middle-aged in the 2060s and 2070s. As that math washed over me like a confusing wave, I thought, what am I doing? How am I spending my time, my really, really good time? Time in my prime with a family I love and so many people I care about nearby, physically or digitally. Time I can go do or try or build anything. The only time I've got. Am I doing the right stuff? Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, lots of people join Tacklebox shortly after they have a kid or lose their job or have some other big shakeup in their life. This might seem counterintuitive. You'd think shakeups would lead to a decrease in risk tolerance. It certainly leads to a decrease in things like time and disposable income. But there are stronger forces at play. As I said, kids and shakeups are mirrors, and most humans will avoid mirrors as long as they physically can, but when one is thrust in front of them, they are, sometimes, willing to make change. The mirror helps them realize that most of the stuff they do each day is a result of inertia, not a conscious choice they'd actively make amongst lots of other options. Things like babies give shape to opportunity cost, usually hidden but suddenly painfully obvious. Each day becomes a clear swap. I could be home with my kid watching him learn how to roll over and laugh and aggressively grab at my beard, but instead I'm at work doing this thing. And this thing seemed fine until the other option got so much better. It reminds me a bit of a Tyler Childers lyric. Up till now, there ain't been nothing that I couldn't leave behind. Yeah, I'm a country guy too. It's not just 90s and 2000s pop, though it mostly is. And since I, like just about everyone, needs to work to keep a roof over my head, I likely can't choose to hang out all day with a little guy. So it becomes more important that the thing I'm leaving him for is worth leaving him for. If you've been a listener of the pod for a while, you might realize something else happening here too that causes the behavior change in a life event. This is a classic inflection point. Behavior change is clustered. When you have a kid, there are 7,000 other decisions you need to make, things you need to buy, changes you'll have to come to grips with. You've got decision-making inertia, so you make more decisions. When you get laid off, when you move or buy a house or get married, the floodgates for new behaviors are opened and the friction for trying something new decreases dramatically. When you're building for a customer, the best way to get early traction is to somehow latch your product onto existing behavior change initiated by someone or something else big and meaningful. Creating the momentum for behavior change on your own is hard. Writing existing momentum is less hard. So find it. Which brings us to quests.
I read an article recently called Choose Good Quests. I'll pop it in the show notes. It's fine. Mostly highlighting that our best and brightest are doing safe things, which I tend to agree with to a point. The article then says it is a smart and capable person's responsibility to devote their lives to problems that help humanity, which I disagree with, but I understand the perspective. Anyway, the thing I liked most about the article was the title. I just cannot get enough of framing your life's work as a quest. It's perfect. Quests are big and hard and worthwhile and kind of playful and definitely mythic. They matter. They're interesting. And that is what I find most people who have been shown a mirror want. An interesting, meaningful quest. Something they can devote their lives to that changes them and the world for the better. Last week in our episode with Seth Godin, which I still can't believe actually happened, he talked about this when I asked what words he'd put on a billboard that people had to drive by each day. His choice was, quote, does it matter? I love this, and it also immediately reminded me of another conversation I'd had years before with Jeff Angler, the founder of a company called Wright Electric that makes 100-plus passenger electric planes, something he started from scratch nearly a decade ago. Jeff and I met in a coffee shop in Soho, and I remember asking him how he wrapped his head around a problem so big and hairy and hard and, in the parlance of a good friend of the pod, wicked. He had to build an electric airplane, sure something that had never been done at that size. But also, he had to compete with Boeing, and if he was building an airline, which he was, Delta and American, and on and on. Then there's the safety stuff and the pilots and the regulations. Well, Jeff cut me off. I've started a few companies now, and I've learned that they're all pretty much equally hard. The unimportant, iterative company will be just as hard to succeed with as the hardest company you can think of. No startup is easy, so you might as well try to do something that matters. And, he continued, in a way, the hard stuff is actually easier. Doing hard stuff that matters acts as a giant magnet for the types of people that are capable of and willing to go after hard stuff that matters. People want to talk about solving important problems. People want to help. They want to fund you. They want to try the product. The less important, less complex stuff is harder in a weird way because no one really talented is interested in helping you do something that, even if it does work, won't really matter all that much. I remember him thinking for a second and then finishing, quote, you'll be in a better place if you try something big and fail than if you try something iterative and succeed because the iterative thing is guaranteed to not matter. The big thing, even if it fails, still might. Plus, you got to look yourself in the mirror in the morning. When you go to the right electric website in big letters, you're greeted by this statement. By 2040, Wright will eliminate carbon emissions from all flights under 800 miles. That is a quest. Today, we're going to talk about quests how to identify quests that matter, how to wrap your arms around the big, hairy, wicked problems those quests are going to pose, how to get started on something so big, and how to avoid being intimidated by it. We've been lucky to have a handful of founders come through the program over the years and go after the big stuff. We'll use some of them to talk through the approach. And we'll do it all after a little smooth jazz, which I considered swapping for the Lord of the Rings soundtrack today, what with the quest talk and all. And there is no better quest soundtrack than Lord of the Rings. But I think we're big enough now that someone might notice and certainly small enough that if we got sued, our quest here would be over. So it's just the regular jazz today, not a bad silver medal. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. 
apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. How to identify a worthy quest. Visualize the moment of success. This is a tough place to begin our quest for quests because a worthy quest will always be subjective. And I think of this first section as more of a jumping off point into the far more relevant next sections, how to get started on something ambitious and how to avoid being intimidated and how to make yourself into a force in a new space. By the way, if you're playing a drinking game where you take a shot of Jaeger every time I say the word quest, please stop. It is not going to end well for you. Anyway, there is one important point I'll start with here. I think about good quests in terms of moments, specifically the exact moment you'll create with your first customers when you lift this massive weight off their shoulders. I like zooming in on that moment and thinking about the reaction the customer will have. Are they relieved, energized, excited to tell the story? What new options do they have now? What can they do? Think about it for your problem. Can you picture someone being successful? How do they feel? Zooming in on the impact and importance of that moment will give you a sense of the impact and importance of the quest. The intensity of the reaction dances in lockstep with the wickedness of the problem. Here is an example. I've been working on the chronic pain idea. If you haven't listened to the past handful of episodes before Seth, there's a huge portion of the population that suffers from debilitating chronic pain. In my interviews, I've met some people who kicked chronic pain, though this is the minority. Nearly all of these people had some combination of treatments, lifestyle changes, and extreme accountability, but each of them reached a place where they hadn't thought about the pain in over a year. When they told me that, I asked them about the moment that they realized the pain was gone. Each corrected me, saying that that wasn't the moment they remember. That wasn't a moment at all. The real moment was when they were once again able to do something they used to love that had been taken away from them. For each person, this was different. One told me they went for a five-mile run for the first time in six years, and when they finished pain-free, they collapsed in tears. Another told me they finished a long day at work where they wrote for seven hours. They were a writer, and they popped up from the desk and went and had dinner with their kids and were fully present with no pain for the first time in years. After dinner, this person excused herself and, yep, cried. The side effect of a worthwhile quest is going to be emotion. If you help people get over a serious hump, help them be successful, there will be a reaction. This moment becomes a marker for us. It is the thing that we work backwards from. This might seem silly, but for lots of hard problems, defining success is hard. What does it look like when you win? This doesn't mean you need to know the product right away. That's going to change. The key is understanding the impact you'll have if you are successful. And since I think of everything in terms of people, I think of the impact in terms of the individual people that'll be affected too. The through line for everything we'll talk about today is one I didn't realize when I started writing this, but now I am supremely confident in. The important quests, the ones worth going on, also make the best fundamental businesses and give you the best chance of success if you pursue them the right way. If you can't think of the specific emotion your customer will have in the moment you solve this big problem for them, that is an issue. That issue might be that you see this as an opportunity to help yourself rather than the customer. 
Maybe you see the potential for a marketplace where you take a small transaction fee and you love the business model. Maybe you're jumping on a trend or being opportunistic or seeking out a B2B SaaS product or AI tool because that seems like the fastest way to get a venture check. This exercise, visualizing your customer at the moment of their success, will weed out those ideas that were secretly about you. And don't feel bad if this happens. We all do it. But customers are going to sniff it out a metric mile away and you'll have no shot. Any successful company is successful because they create the conditions for their customer, particularly their first customers, to be wildly successful. Make sure you know those moments before you start the quest. Drink. How to wrap your arms around something overwhelming and avoid the 90-yard mistake. Now that we've agreed you're going to do something that really matters for the first set of customers, we've got to deal with the fact that you're trying to do something that really matters. That is intimidating and usually overwhelming because the stuff that really matters that hasn't been solved yet is usually the hardest stuff. Lots of entrepreneurs default to solving problems with limited upside and limited downside because they subconsciously don't want to be on the hook. Don't let that be you. Hopefully, you've got some sort of unfair advantage here, and we've got a ton of episodes on that. Hopefully, the idea you go after is one that sits at the center of your founder Venn diagram of unique skills, networks, and knowledge bases. Hopefully, it's one you've been subconsciously preparing to go after for years, but maybe it's not. Either way, there's one massive mistake people make here. I call it the 90-yard mistake. The 90-yard mistake happens most with empathetic entrepreneurs driven endlessly by the big problem. I've been running into it with my chronic pain idea. Here is what it looks like. Last week, I interviewed five or six people suffering from chronic pain. One messaged me before saying that while he'd like to do a Zoom call, his head hurt too bad and he couldn't. On most days, he's never able to turn on the lights. As we talked, I realized how much pain he was really in. He'd been injured six months earlier in a car accident and had lingering, brutal headaches. He hadn't been able to go back to work yet. He knows he has a long road ahead, and he's motivated to travel it. I'm confident he's going to get there, but it is a long way. Another call was with a woman who'd been injured in a surfing accident two years ago. She'd gone through a rough six-month stretch directly after the accident, then found a clinic that was helpful. She'd kicked 90% of the chronic pain, but had one bump in the road left, working at a computer nine hours a day. By hour three, she was usually uncomfortable. By hour five, she needed to take Advil. And the last 45 minutes of the day were nearly unbearable. She was able to run and surf and do all the things she used to do, but the final boss of this injury was a nine-hour workday at a computer without serious pain by the end. She couldn't solve it, despite endless attempts at ergonomics and daily stretches. I visualize most customers I find like they're on a football field, with the end zone being them reaching their goals, the moment of success we talked about earlier. And for our beloved Brits, we've got a ton of you listening, apparently. I'm talking about American football. If I plot these two customers on that field, one is on their own 10-yard line, a full 90 yards away from the end zone. The other is close, maybe five yards away from the end zone. The mistake entrepreneurs make here is thinking that since they're trying to do this meaningful thing, the product they build should be for the customers that need the most amount of help. That first customer I spoke with, the one in so much pain they couldn't turn on the lights, we can help them a ton. 
During all this customer discovery and research I've done, I found a bunch of doctors and clinics and practices this guy can and should try. We can move him 30, 40, 50, 60 metaphorical yards, hitting big milestones along the way. But even if we move this person 60 yards, they're still 30 yards from the end zone. The second customer, we'd only have to push her those five yards. That's all we need to solve a serious problem for her, to get her into the end zone, kicking chronic pain altogether. This section is about wrapping our arms around a hard problem. And the way to do that is to make the hard problem easier. To find the people who only need a hand getting off the bus, not the people who need us to help them from square one of booking travel plans. As we said, startups are about creating the conditions for success so that the customers you help be successful can tell other people about what you did for them. So that adjacent potential customers look at the people you've helped and are jealous of their success. People make decisions based on envy, not greed, and that is how you're going to grow. So we need to stack the deck and make sure our first customers are wildly publicly successful. Our product's natural growth then would be from the people who have five yards to go to the people who have 10, then 15, then 20, and back and back and back. As we move further away from the end zone, we'd likely need to add new levels of service as the problems would expand and diversify. But this growth flow keeps the product as small and manageable and possible through that growth stage. If we started by targeting the person 90 yards away, we'd have to build out all sorts of products and services to reach a goal that might be two years away and still might be unlikely. It's a feedback loop and product scope a business likely cannot survive. The other option, if we really want to work with the customer 90 yards away, is to change where the end zone is. So we might say, we're going to get you to the place where you can have the lights on during the day. If that success is uniform, compelling to similar customers, and something you can build a business around, great. But success needs to be clear and obvious if it's going to be shareable. Be careful about that. If you're the type of entrepreneur who wants to go after big problems, you'll be the type of entrepreneur who naturally tries to help the person 90 yards away from the end zone. Make sure you either shift the field so that they're close to some goal that's meaningful and can anchor a business, or realize that the best viable path to them is to start with people who have bleeding neck problems, but are close to solving them with your help. I think about this a little bit like storytelling. Some of the best writing advice I ever got was to start with the thing that mattered, the crucial point of the story, when your aunt spilled the casserole or your uncle got eaten by a bear and roll back from there only far enough to set the most critical parts of the story up. The further back you move from the moment the story is about, the more skill you need as a storyteller to grab and keep attention, and the less likely the story is going to land. Startups are the same way. The further back you move from that moment of success, the harder you make everything for yourself. How to get started. People and success. We've talked about people a lot this episode, but the way to get started is to remember that everything is about people. The domain is always people, and you need to be an expert in setting them up for success. When you are solving huge problems like building an electric plane, it's easy to forget about people, but it's always the people that matter, the ones who benefit from what you're going to build. A few years ago, someone came into Tacklebox with a ghost kitchen idea. The founder was super talented. They'd done ops and logistics at both Uber and Lyft. They thought that if they had a few strategically placed kitchens and a fleet of trucks with ovens in them to keep the food warm, 
that could revolutionize food delivery. I thought the idea was interesting, so I called my resident chef expert, a Tacklebox alum. Yeah, he said, you'll never get any good food with the ghost kitchen concept over any period of time. Why? I asked. The trucks can keep stuff warm and you can even finish the dishes in the truck if you need to. He cut me off. It has nothing to do with the trucks or the quality of the food. I'm sure those are fine. But answer me this. Why do chefs cook? It was quiet, assuming it was a rhetorical question. And then when I realized it wasn't, I blurted out something like, because they like food? No, he said flatly. We cook because we like cooking for people. When a customer tells a waiter to tell you that they loved a dish, or when you peek around the corner and see people enjoying your food, or you think of a recipe as a special and it sells out, or when a cook from another restaurant nearby comes over and you make them something and they're wowed by it, that is why we cook. No good chef will ever sit in a room without windows and customers and make nameless food for faceless people. Thinking about people forces you to put this giant, seemingly unwieldy quest into clear terms. You're helping this specific person solve this specific problem because it's important to them. And all the other people impacted feel the same way. This requires interviews and ethnographic research and choosing and all the good stuff we always talk about. It helps you break down the big, scary thing into people who are much less scary and much easier to build for. People make ideas approachable which leads us into our last section, how to not be intimidated. If you're choosing something hard and worth doing, there are going to be lots of people in that space that are good at stuff that's hard and worth doing. That can be intimidating, often to the point of making these ideas non-starters. Don't let that happen. There are two ways to not be intimidated. One is silly and one's a tactic. We'll start silly. First, Everyone's just a person, just like you. They were all kids once, just like you were. And the gap between you and them is way smaller than you think and way more manageable. The whole human population is in a pretty tight competency band. The best thing to do is target why you're insecure and build a plan to attack that. If, say, you've got an idea in the solar power space because you think it's a meaningful quest for the planet, and I agree, but you haven't been in the space for the past 10 years and you don't have a network, cool. Let's build one. First, get someone off of Fiverr to create a list of the top 250 thought leaders in the space. People who write about, work in, and invest in the top solar companies. Send them all cold emails, seeing if they're up for a coffee. Have that same person compile a list of all the solar events, newsletters, conferences, and happy hours in the area. Attend one or two each week, have five to 10 coffees or calls each week, and in six months, you'll be known in the industry. Whatever you're intimidated about, Attack it with purpose and strategy because no one else is going to do that. But just because they don't doesn't mean you can't. It's going to work. As always, put your ass where your heart is. That was actually pretty tactical. So I guess both of these are tactical. On to number two. Push on the first principles of the industry and the problem and the customer. This is a great way to break the impenetrable facade of an industry. Most first principles in an industry exist because they were easy at some point and then it was hard to change them. Here is an example. The myth of the hour-long therapy appointment. Why are therapy appointments all an hour? Is it because therapists need an hour? Is it because patients need an hour? Of course not. 
It's because therapists bill by the hour, and when there weren't virtual appointments, it didn't make sense for someone to drive across town to a therapist's office for anything less than an hour. It makes things simple. But what if therapy appointments were seven minutes long and every day? Getting familiar with a space is a combination of knowledge, network, and secrets. Lots of times, pushing on the first principles of the industry leads you to secrets. You can build systems for the rest. The end. Choose worthy quests. You can do just about anything you'd like. Some things might take some time and pressure and maybe a partner or two, and everything's going to take luck. But what you work on is a choice. Whatever you're doing now is likely due, at least in some part, to inertia. Take a look in the mirror, whether you've had a kid or not, and see if what you're doing is worth your time. We don't have much time, that is. And maybe most importantly, I found out that our best, happiest, and most successful entrepreneurs, the ones that grow with their business and have just exploded as people, those are the ones that chose the things that seem the hardest and least likely at the start. The five or seven or 10 or 30 year quests solving important stuff other people are too scared to touch, that is usually the good stuff. Hard, important things inspire and attract. They force you to focus and your business is better for it. And when they work, they matter. And if you're on a great quest, it softens the blow of recording a podcast while you hear your son giggling and squealing upstairs. The trade-off maybe isn't worth it, but at least it's one I'd actively choose. A worthy quest. Drink. And with that, time to go upstairs and get in on some of those squeals. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply and we'll flesh it out. We will get back to you in 72 hours. Have a great week.